Thank you, Brent. Good morning, Rock Bible Church. I wish I could see more of you. I know we'll see some of you uh, second service outside and looking forward to that. That's going to be a good time. Uh, and the new tent. We got a brand new tent. It's bigger, stronger, faster. We can rebuild him. I'm sorry, I'm having my uh, million dollar man, bionic man moment. Uh, but we put it up this week. You can come see it and check it out. So we have some uh, capabilities for being outside. And so we look forward to being with you when we can. And um, I just want to reiterate what Brent said about uh, switching the feed from Facebook to YouTube. It provides some great opportunities, some quality, some other things like that. So we're going to do our best uh, to make sure that you have full access. If you need to stay home, you want to stay home. If you're just more comfortable staying home, we want to be able to do that in ways that work best for you. Is this the microphone? What is that? Okay, we'll do our best. Um, and then I just also want to thank... Uh, Brent, a couple weeks ago, did chapter four of 1 Timothy for us, and then last week, Kyle Wilson uh, came, and we got a guest speaker opportunity out of him, and just want to thank both of them, and uh, Julie and I had a chance to take a little time off and do some things with the family and whatnot, and uh, it's good to be back, though. It's so weird to be gone. I just, I was going through withdrawals, I think, so uh, help me become normal again by uh, joining with me this morning. We're continuing our series, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5. We only have two more, so next week we're going to wrap up. We're going to culminate. Uh, but today we're going to do chapter 5, and we're going to get going right after we pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the youth band. And Lord, as much as the worship leading, the prayers their commitment, their desire to follow you, just what an encouragement that is to us. Uh, what a reminder. And Lord, so applicable to what we're actually going to talk about this morning. And so we thank you for that. Uh, pray mostly, Lord, for you, your son, your son's commitment, your son's abilities, and everything that he is and has done and continues to do for us. We thank you for that gift, uh, especially, Lord, as we're heading into the Christmas season. And so I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this morning as we look at this passage and what it means to us uh, as a church, as people, uh, really as followers of you. And Lord, I, I just pray um, you would bless this time, uh, both here and at home and those who listen or view throughout the week. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's get going. We're 1 Timothy chapter 5, and uh, we'll see if the microphone lasts and the snapping and popping, we'll see. Um, we've been talking about faith, and uh, we started off chapter 1 talking about aiming faith and uh, personal faith and all these different things. This week, uh, we want to talk about conspicuous faith, conspicuous faith and prejudice, kind of the opposites. And um, Paul is, I want to remind you, Paul is writing to a guy. His name's Timothy. He's not, he's not necessarily writing to the whole church. He's writing about the church to the leader of the church and saying, hey, this is how we need to look at this. And we have to remember that because he's writing a letter to a believer, someone who already has faith, and he's saying, this is how you should live. 
And so the terminology that he uses, he's going to talk about women. He's not talking to the women. He's talking about women to a guy. So sometimes we get into some of this gender language when we read a passage and think, oh, wow, is he stepping on toes? No, he's just talking to another guy. If he had written a letter to a lady or to the whole church, it would sound different. So we got to remember that as we get in. But most important, Paul is telling Timothy, if you're going to follow Christ, here's some things you really need to do. Here's some things you need to look for. And I want to draw that out in a little bit, the idea of the ability to look for something. To be, to be able to look for something, you have to be able to see it, right? So that's what we're going to look at here real quick. Um, let's jump in. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man. All right, I like that. Is that enough for today? Can we just stop right there? I'm an older man. You can't rebuke me. Is that it? No, there's more, right? Do not rebuke an older man, but to encourage him as you would a father. He's saying, if you're going to challenge somebody older than you, what's the approach? A challenge is one thing, but how you say it. You ever, you ever uh, been right, and then they told you, well, you were right, but the way you said it, you lost, right? That happens fairly regularly to someone I know very, very well whose skin I live in, right? Where I, I'm, I may be right about something, but the person I say it to or someone listening says, yeah, you know, technically you were right, but man, the way you said it, offsides, right? Um, that's important, our approach, but I want you to note the relationship. This is this older man, and you want to challenge him, you want to rebuke him, but it says treat him as a wise old guy, treat him as a friend, treat him as a boss, no, treat him as an employee, no, what's the word? Treat him as a father, as you would a father. What's that implying? This old man is now part of your family. It's a very interesting idea to mentally do the gymnastics of before I go and challenge somebody, before I engage with somebody, can I adopt them first? Oh, wait, they're in my family. If they're in my family, how would I talk to them? Well, if they're in my family, I can ignore them, be really rude, and use any words I want. Because that's how we treat our family, right? No, that's not the goal. The goal is what? If we think somebody's part of our family, we're supposed to be caring towards them, loyal towards them. We want their best interests. When we bring somebody into the family, what are you saying? You're saying long term, I'm looking out for what's best for you. And watch what he does, because he's not just going to talk about older men. And he says, younger men as brothers, right? When you deal with younger men, deal with them like they're in your family. Older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now I ask you, based on those relationships and how he's defined it as a family, what's most important, the rebuke or the relationship? Right, That would have been a great fill-in for the end of the message. What's most important to you, rebuke or relationship? Question mark. Now, that's a Socratic question that implies an answer. The obvious answer is what? The relationship. If you don't have a relationship, you don't have a rebuke. You don't have a challenge, not one that will be listened to. In fact, what you have now is conflict. 
um, and probably escalation. And Paul's saying, let's not do that. Let's especially not do it within the church. And therefore, Timothy, you got to lead the way. You got to do this. Uh, verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. He says, hey, look, in the, in the experience of the church, we're going to have widows. How do we treat them? He says, well, back to family. If family's around, let them engage with their family. And let's not take advantage of the system. Watch where he goes with this from here. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, meaning no family, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Who's she putting her faith in? Putting her faith in God, right? There is no family to provide food, to provide things. She's probably turning to the church or turning to God and saying, Lord, as a prayer, Lord, help me. How are you going to provide for me? They continue in prayers uh, night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Says if you're if you're a widow and you're taking advantage of the church, you still got family, but you you're trying to get the church to give you things and you're trying to milk the system. Well, you're you're violating the family now. And watch what it says here. Uh, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Ooh, any guesses as to whether that's true about both genders or everyone? I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count. This is true about anybody. Self-indulgent? What was kind of implied in the first four phrases when it talked about older men, younger men, older women, younger women? Are you going after them in self-indulgent ways? Because you're dead before you even got in the conversation. And watch, because we're going to start talking about uh, leaders in the church and all these other things. But there's this idea of, uh, are you alive or are you dead inside? Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. He's saying, Tim, you need to do this in the church. Make sure you're teaching this to everybody. This is how we do well as, an, as a, a body. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Whoa. Worse than an unbeliever. How, what's worse than not having faith in God? Like in, okay, right? Outside the church, they have all kinds of different standards. Inside the church, we say faith in Christ, what he did on the cross, his resurrection, his payment of our sin, his love for us, grace, forgiveness, all those things. What's more important than that? Nothing. What's worse than that? Everything, right? Here he says, to not have faith in Christ is, is not as bad as having faith in Christ but not taking care of your family, not taking care of your relatives. You're worse than somebody who doesn't even believe. Now, where are unbelievers headed? They're headed to trouble. Let's just say it that way. They have, they have a very difficult conversation in the very end, and it's probably not going to go well for them. What's worse than hell? What's worse than separation from God? when you start separating yourself from him now. 
Folks, heaven starts now and hell starts now. You can start earning your way or enjoying it however you want. But Paul's trying to make sure that Timothy understands we're not doing stuff for a game that's later. This is not practice. This is the game. We are keeping score, gaining yardage, or we're losing right now. And you do that with your family. I love that he makes this analogy of, hey, when you're talking to an older man, do you view him as family? And, and instead of your rebuke, how about providing for your family, caring for your relatives, inviting them to Thanksgiving is more important than whatever little conflict you have or, or priority or peeve, pet peeve. Uh, those things get you in trouble, not them. Very interesting. Let a widow be enrolled, verse 9, if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. So we're, we're like, who is this lady? If she wants to be enrolled in the, in the widow program of the church, which they apparently had back then. We don't currently have one at Rock Bible Church. Maybe we need to start one. They said, Let, let's make sure they're legitimately widows, right? Let's have a couple standards. Having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Uh, what are we looking for? People who know how to take care of family. People who care about providing for rather than taking advantage of. Which side on the scale are you? Right? They value relationship rather than rebuke. But, verse 11, refuse to enroll younger widows. Apparently, they had younger widows who were taking advantage of the system. Oh, I'm a widow, so I should get benefits from the church. I should get payouts, handouts, whatever it is. Uh, for, we're not going to do younger women. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. That's great. If you find yourself in a situation where your spouse has passed, do you know now you have a verse that gives you permission to remarry later? That's good, right? Some people worry about that or they're on their second marriage and they're like, oh, that's like a big thing. Well, Paul commands it here almost. Because younger women are going to remarry, hopefully. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now you were trusting in God and the church to provide for you. Now you're turning to this guy. Well, which one is it? It's not Paul saying one's right or one's wrong. What Paul's saying is don't do both. Don't be double-minded. Don't say one thing and then do another and change back and forth. How about you stand for something? And how about that something be God and his people because it's all meant to be a family? Right? Have you realized that, that as a church, we're not, we're not really a business? We're not, we're not really a nonprofit? I mean, technically we are, right? But what's the best analogy for what we are? Are we a hierarchy? Are we a kingdom? No, we're a family. It's a great, great analogy. Uh, besides that, these younger women learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying uh, what they should not. So they get themselves busy because they're not pursuing providing for someone else. They just go around taking advantage of people. 
Maybe you've met people like that. And by the way, does this apply to men too? Are there men that do this also? Yes. And we're going to get to that in a minute. So I would have younger women marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the uh, adversary no occasion for slander. Whoa, what is he saying? Like, So feminists might get really freaked out about this. Oh, it's just all they're good for is to marry and have kids and take care of the house. No, this is what culture was like back then. He's saying, ladies, you have the freedom to go, go and live again. Engage in life. This is not a condemnation. This is liberty, freedom. You get to re-engage and be part of the system again rather than opt out of the system. It's like, oh, it's over for me. God won't provide for me. I'm just going to run around from every house and see what I can get from other people rather than try to be responsible on their own. It says when you do that, and by the way, we can do that in many different ways today. We can do it on social media. We can do it in how we file our taxes. There's all these different ways where we can cut corners. He says when you, when you do that, you give an occasion for the adversary. And you're going to bring about slander eventually. You're going down a slope and it's going to get bad. For some have already strayed after Satan. Kind of interesting. He said... Uh, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And then it says they've already strayed after Satan. Well, Satan's title is the adversary. So he said the adversary and the adversary twice. Know this, when you enter into conflict, when your priorities are more important than other people's wellness, when you value what you think is right or your information over the relationship, you're, you're treading on Satan's land. And man, that sounds so stereotypical pastor on a stage. You know, you're, you're walking with Satan. Well, try not to take it that way and just say, you're walking like someone who is combative, divisive. You're walking on the same path. Now, you're not walking with him, and you'll never be him, and he can't control you. Okay, we're not going to get into that. What we're going to get into is what, what's your tendency, what's your priority? will you get in trouble or will you get blessed? Right? Uh, verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Engage with your family is what it's saying. Let the church not be burdened so it may care for those who are truly widows. Please make sure you understand this. This is not saying that widows are a burden to the church. What it's saying is there's some people who have legitimate need, and let's move everything out of the way so that we can take care of the people with legitimate need. And if you're not one of those, recognize it, own it, and engage with your family. If you still have the ability to provide and do something, then tell me about your faith. Can we see your faith in how you play it out and what you do? It said, let true widows, and then it mentioned twice, good works. What are good works? They're visible. They're seeable. Right? It says, go do that. Engage with your relatives, and don't be a burden on the church. So it may care for those who are truly widows. Verse 17, let the elders, oh, here we go. Now we're getting the men. Maybe. That's how they would view it. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Are you trying to go after the elders? 
Remember, because earlier it said, older men, don't rebuke him unless, da, 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 right? Be careful. And here it says, hey, um, are, you, are you interested in honoring those that lead? I think this is a great question even outside the church. People in authority of, uh, over you or th- people that have a little more experience beyond you, how about anybody, women included? Do we honor them? Do we value their experience? Do we value their wisdom, their age? You know, I, I was fascinated. The kids, when they led worship, uh, one of the prayers, they talked about uh, God draws into your wisdom or something like that. that. That's brilliant. What are we asking for? We're asking for somebody who's older than us with more experience than us teaching us. Well, are there others than God who could do that for us? Right? You just still call your parents and ask them advice? If they're still around, what a great opportunity. Uh, Let elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And there we go. Apparently, I'm an ox. (laughs) We have an actual verse. Uh, What's this about? It's about preaching and teaching. What's pre- what is preached and what is taught when preaching and teaching happen? What's the source? What's the content, right? What is it? It's Bible. It's Word of God. It's His truth. What's Paul drawing attention to? Elders or pastors or overseers are more important than other people? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't get in the way of the Word of God. When the word of God's going out, do you honor it? Do you double honor it? Do you move stuff out of the way so that we can get truth out there? Why? Because when truth is out there, we avoid rebuke, we avoid bad things, we dedicate ourselves to good works, and people can see it. That's what should be most important. And if the ox is working, you should feed him. Right? You got an ox plow in the field and they're going to get tired. They're burning all this energy and you don't feed them. What's going to happen to the ox? He goes bye bye. Right? The laborer is worth his wage. Do we value what people do? If we see them as relatives, if we see them as family, then what they do becomes important. We view them the way God views them. This is wonderful. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I kind of wonder if this is um, if these are two different clauses or one full clause. Okay? Do not admit a charge against an elder, period, or comma, which they didn't have, periods or commas. Do not admit a charge against an elder, period. That's true about you except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You know what that's telling you? By yourself, are you allowed to challenge an elder? Challenge somebody ahead of you. Like, by the way, does, it work, does that work at your employment place? Does it work in your family? Does it work with your spouse? You better be careful. When you go by yourself and you charge anyone with anything, it's really more a statement about you. Now, if two or three more people start to see it, well, now we might have a pattern and maybe we need to have a conversation now. 
What, what Paul is warning Timothy about is be careful that you don't run away with ideas in your own head of what you think is supposed to be right or how you think they're supposed to carry themselves. Instead, you should view them as family and worry about how you're carrying yourself. And I've, I've seen this so many times. I, I've worked in a few churches. I've worked in a few churches. Every man that I've ever worked for has been fired in the church. And I still don't know what that means. I don't get it. But I know that people are ugly. They can be. But I love what David said. And it has become a core value for me. When God came to David and he told David, Saul will no longer be king, and you're going to be my next king. Well, that means Saul's supposed to be out of the picture. And Saul remains king for years. Not for a couple weeks, not for a couple months, not maybe even a decade. For years, Saul is still around. And everybody knows now that David is supposed to be the next king. Right, remember David and Goliath and all the brothers, and they all they all pansied out, and David rose to the occasion. And he's supposed to be. Everybody knew, Saul knew. It was the rumor out throughout the land, and Saul was going after David, trying to kill him, chasing him all over the countryside, into other countries, and back. And David would not fight Saul. Now God has told you that you're supposed to be the next king, and there is a king currently. That king has to be out of the way for you to then become king. And that king is trying to kill you every chance he gets. And they come to David and they say, why not? Go after the king. Go after the elder. Go after the overseer. And David said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He says, I am more clear than anybody else on what God has said. I'm supposed to be king. I understand that. But when God's ready to remove Saul, God will remove Saul. Until then, I am not king. I won't act like king. I'm not going to do anything against the king. I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, quite a while uh, farther into the story, uh, here comes a messenger running to David to give him news that Saul has died. Saul has been killed. Now, it wasn't David that did it, but here comes the messenger, and the messenger is so excited to tell David that Saul is dead and that David is king, he was too excited, and David had him killed on the spot. Why? Because you rejoiced in the downfall of the Lord's anointed. This passage is all about that for me. Older men that you want to rebuke, are they the Lord's anointed in your life? Your mom, is she the Lord's anointed in your life? Your boss, that God puts you underneath on purpose, your coworkers, your family members, the extended ones, the ones you don't want at Thanksgiving, why are they in your life? Does God put them there? God put you there. Why? So they could be family to you. 
So you could value that over your little rebuke. Value the relationship over the rebuke. But we live in a culture, right? We call it cancel culture. We call it uh, doxing and just eliminating people. We post stuff. We talk behind people's back. And why? Because people are ugly. And it's hard for us to follow the Lord. And even when we're doing it and try it, we stray, we wander, we go off to the side. Tim says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, don't do that. Don't do that. Except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, those, who's those? Elders or leaders, right? If they're really messing up and they keep messing up, rebuke them in the presence of all. Well, shouldn't you go to them privately to be respectful? No, it's, it's interesting here. Paul says, no, do it in public. I want it to be seen. I want it to be looked for, and I want it to be seen by the congregation. Why? Watch this. So that the rest may stand in fear. Fear of what? When you buck God, it doesn't work. When God gives you a position of authority and you take advantage of it, he'll chase you down. Uh, and he's very quick. He's really good at hide and seek, right? Reference the story, Jonah, <laughs> right? Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without what? Prejudice. Without prejudging or without prejudice. He names God, he names his son, and he names the elect angels. In the presence of all of them, do not come up with your own ideas as to what you think is supposed to happen. Man, that's hard. Instead, keep the rules. The rules are for us. The rules are not for you to imply, impose, and beat other people up with. The rules are for yourself. Well, yeah, but they, did you hear what they said? Did you see what they did? They posted, move on. Be who God's called you to be. Learn how to worship. Learn how to pray. Learn how to trust in the Lord. Learn how to have conspicuous face that others can see. Rather than being prejudiced, you've judged prior to the event. You have prejudged. You have prejudice as to how you feel about this, that, the other, that person, a turn of events, how the vote came out. Get over yourself. Folks, there's only one vote that matters. I just disgusted me every time I heard on any kind of projection, they said, this is the most important vote of our entire lives. No, it wasn't. There shan't be ever in our future, a vote that is the most important in our lives on earth. There's one vote that is the most important of all time. And there's only one vote. I don't mean like there's one voting event. I mean, there's only one vote. There's, there's one to nothing in that vote. The vote is about you and Jesus is the only one that casts it. Uh, I vote for Scott. Do you know how the recount goes? 
It's real easy. And you can't challenge it. I love that. The question is, do I live like it? Do I think like it? But what's most important in my daily life are the relationships that God has put me in. Not for me to prejudge, but for me to follow the rules so that the rest can see it. The rest can benefit. The rest can learn from it. That's what we're supposed to do. When a leader doesn't do that, take him out. That's what Paul's saying. Do nothing from partiality. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Like, don't jump to laying hands on somebody and praying for them. You might watch them for a week or so, or two. But somebody comes in and they want something right away. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Right? We're back to uh, widows that are taking advantage of the church kind of thing. Right? And guys do it. People do it. Leaders do it. Keep yourself pure. Wait a minute. Isn't that supposed to say keep others pure? Make rules for others? Hold them to it? No. It says nothing about others. So keep yourself pure. And then watch this. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's kind of random. Apparently, they were only drinking water. And I don't know. I don't, I mean, did a little bit of wine take something, or the alcohol kills something in the water so that now it's better for them? Or does it do something for their stomach? I, he's like, look, you got rules about just only drinking water or you can't have wine or blah, blah, blah. He's like, look. Get over that stuff. Quit making rules about all that. And then watch, he just moves on. He's just like onto that topic and then right off in one sentence. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous. Ooh. Look at the top of your outline or the notes. Conspicuous faith. I didn't make that up. I stole it right there. The sins of some people are conspicuous. What? They're seen. They're visible. You can look for them, Right? going before them to judgment. Ooh, so there is judgment. Who gets to do it? God. Is that our job? No, our job is to see what is conspicuous about them. But the sins of others appear later. Hmm. You know what's been said without being said? There are no hidden sins. They're going to come out. They're going to be viewed, they're going to be known, at some point it's going to come out, right? Bummer Sunday. Or, watch this, next set. So also, good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Good works are going to come out at some point. Someone's going to find out. What's he just said? He's just said everything's conspicuous. Everything is known. He's given you four chapters of, hey, here's a couple underlying foundations for faith and what we have faith in and how we do it. And it says, now look, he's about to end the book, end the letter. What you do is conspicuous. Whether it's good or bad, it will be seen. We could videotape it. So what are you doing? See, it's easy to wander into the wrong area. He said that about the ladies. He said that about the men, right? 
Elders who continue in sin, what's happened? They've wandered. How do we avoid that? Well, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? Let's find out. What do we do? Because nothing can remain hidden. Um, Let's ask this question. Number one, what do they see? Right, this whole chapter is really about you, what you do, what's conspicuous about you. And really, it begs the question, if it's all about you, then what do they see? It never talks about others, but the implication is, by being conspicuous in everything you do, your faith will be seen. They'll, they'll be able to watch you. Right? What do they see from you? Not what do they think about you. What do they see from you? Those are very different things, and they will absolutely change the trajectory of your life. Do you think if you're worried about what they think about you, that's very different than what they see from you? Because they could see what they need to see and come up with the wrong thoughts. That's on them. What's on us is what do we do? What could we catch on video? We've had uh, some shenanigans on the church property over the last several weeks. And so we went out and bought a camera system. So I spent the other day setting up all these cameras all over. You cannot get on the Rock Bible Church property anymore without being seen. It's the most amazing thing. They sense motion, camera comes on, I get an alert, and oh, look, so-and-so is walking on the property. Love that. Because now there's, there's nothing to argue about. No, they were there. No, nobody's there. You know, sometimes the, the thing will come on, and right in the moment, I'll get to see it, right? They're evident right then. Sometimes it'll send me a, a reminder a little bit later. Hey, by the way, this happened 15 minutes ago. Here's a video of it. You know, that's, that's what our faith is like. How do you live it out? What do other people see? What could they actually record on video and go, oh, hey, look, look at what they did. They must have faith. I love that we had the youth band up here this morning and will in, a, in just a couple minutes. Why? Because we videoed it. There's evidence now. Now, do we think that uh, any of them could properly define transubstantiations and the implication on the modern church when it comes to theology? No. And we don't care about that so much, really. What we care about is the fact is that we visibly saw people get up on stage and stand for God, pray to God, sing about God, and who knows where they stand in their relationship with the Lord. What we care about is that they're trying. We saw effort, and it's recordable. What effort do other people see from you that's recordable? We got a really awesome one coming up at the end of the service today. I'm going to bring a couple up here, and it can be recorded because they want to make an effort. It's very specific. I hope you stick around for the very end after the last song. Uh, uh, verse 24 and 25 says, the sins are conspicuous, either right now or some come out later, and good works are conspicuous, and none of them can remain hidden, right? 
But then those of you that are really follow on in the notes, right? Underneath this first one, it says 24 through 25, right? Look, look at the numbers right after that. You see that? 1 through 22. Scott, that's the whole passage. Well, it is. Except I only left out one, verse 23. Every single verse, except for verse 23. I haven't figured out how you could make verse 23 recordable. But 24 of the 25 verses in this passage talk about things that could actually be seen or done, heard about, listened to, witnessed. What does Paul care about? And Paul cares about it because it's what God cares about. God wants to know what you're doing. So important. So important. Uh, number two, uh, honor or burden? Honor or burden? And there's a whole bunch of verses here, and I don't know that we want to get into all of them, but like the verse, verse 3, it says, hey, honor widows, right? Verse 17, uh, elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. Verse 16, hey, let's not have the church be burdened. Why? Because somebody's trying to take advantage of it. Verse 14, um, give the adversary no occasion, Right? So you're going to become a burden when you give the adversary an occasion, right? Verse 15, uh, it says, some have strayed after Satan. I become a burden. They become a, a competition. And then verse 6, she who is self-indulgent is dead. Whoa. Those that are self-indulgent, that are burden to others, are dead even while they are yet alive. That's crazy. I, I, am, I am absolutely curious, what does that word mean to God when he had it put in there by Paul? The fact that we're dead if we're self-indulgent. Are we dead to God? Are we over? It, is it too late? Man, that's scary. When you become self-indulgent, is there a return from that? Is there a map back? Can you retrace your steps out of self-indulgence? Praise God that with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Amen? But man, it's hard. Man, it's hard. When you become a burden, you've become a burden. How many people feel honored by you? How many people, like, if I called them, if I showed up at their work, if I met them for coffee and said, hey, I want you to tell me about Fred. He's doing church discipline on Fred. We got some concerns. How many of people would say about Fred? No, he actually has got a lot of honor in him. He does the right thing. He's the right kind of guy. He's a man after God's own heart. You know, that's what God's looking for. That's what God's looking for. Bam! I wonder if they hear that back at home. Uh, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says, the, the eyes of the Lord to look to and fro throughout the whole earth, searching for those whose hearts are truly his. Man. What would the payoff be? 
If you honored God and you honored others like it was family, what's the payoff? I'll let you know. Ready? Question is really, are rules for you or judging others? Are rules for you or judging others? Because that's where prejudice is. When the rules are for someone else, like when you make rules, but then you go out to a restaurant and do the exact same thing you told everybody not to do, is that a leader? The rules are for you. When I read the Bible, the rules are for me. It's the way it goes. Lastly, and here's the payoff. And this might not sound like a payoff, but we're going to explain it, right? Work, provide, and rule well. You know, these are the commands. They're implied throughout the passage. Throughout those 25 verses, talks about women and, and who are widows, and you know, they're known for their good works. Hey, the elders that are teaching and preaching, and they're doing their work. Hey, they're worthy of honor, right? What does it say? It says we're supposed to work. If you are capable of working in any way, work. Get something done. Provide for someone or just yourself, but do anything. The Bible says six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest. Everybody thinks that's about Sabbath. On the seventh day you shall rest, for the Lord rested after six days in the days when he created the earth. What? Yeah. What did he do the first six days? He worked. We're supposed to work, people. Figure it out. Supposed to work with your family, by the way. That's what the passage is about. Is it talking about your occupation? Not at all. Just how are you working at your family? How are you working at relationships? Are you being divisive? Confrontational? Are you sending those emails? Are you posting? Are you calling? Let me ask you about your tone. What are you working at? And as you work, the goal is then to provide, right? Work, why? So you can provide. By the way, you can't provide anything if you don't work, right? Until you work, you can't provide. And then once you're working and providing, guess what people around you are going to go think? They're going to go, hey, they're capable. They're doing good things. We should put them in charge of something. Next thing you know, you're on a committee or you've got keys, Right? How many keys do you have? How many keys do you have? You know, keys Keys are, have become this weird thing for me. They're a sign that sin is in the world, right? You got to have keys because people will bust in, right? So you got to lock everything up. There's a positive way to look at keys, though. Keys are given to people that someone deems responsible and you have given them authority over what that key opens. How cool is that? Oh, man, I've got so many keys. What a great compliment, rather than a burden. So you could rule, and you could rule well, right? Setting your hope on God. I love what it says about the widows. It says that those that have done this, da, 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 and they don't have anybody, they're all alone. They have set their hope on God. You know, when you let people continue in their sin, when you let people keep going without rebuking them, when you let people have their own learning curve with God, you are setting your hope on God. It is conspicuous faith that you're not confronting them. 
That's what we're supposed to do. Set our hope on God that God is the one who's going to judge. God's going to one that is the one that makes the rules. And God is saying to you, why don't you get your feet and your hands moving and do something yourself? Keep yourself pure. Amen? How do people see you? And what's your prejudice? And how many prejudices is could you eliminate? How many could you get rid of? And then how can you honor people rather than be a burden? How can you honor people that are honoring people? And then how could you reach out sincerely and purely to those who are a burden and help them? They're headed down a track. They're headed down a path that leads to destruction, and they might need help. You could help them. But what's your approach going to be? And how will you do that well? See, God wants us to have conspicuous faith everywhere he places us. And everywhere we are, there he's placed us. There's no, see, there's no hiding. There's no hiding. Lord, thank you that we can... Uh, we can exercise a faith with you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to learn in that, grow in it, that we can, as the students prayed, we can gain from your wisdom. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us because we're going to be conspicuous no matter what. Help us in that which we should be conspicuous in. Help us to show you. First and foremost to ourselves, may we compel ourselves to you so that we can come then compel others to you as well. We thank you, Lord, and pray this all in your son's name. Amen.